afternoon for week five of the video series. Uh, we have been talking about and, and studying, if you will, the gospel according to Jesus. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a subject which is, uh, I would think, inarguably the most important thing that occurs in the life of a Christian. And that is that, that miracle of redemption that takes place when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Uh, before we get started on that, let me go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll get right into the lesson. I'm not anticipating that it's going to be a very long lesson today, but at the same time, uh, I have been known to, to uh, get distracted. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this afternoon for this beautiful day and for the opportunity to once again share the truth of your word. Uh, Father, we, we know that... Uh, even though the, the virus seems to be dissipating in, in most of the country, that there is still great discord across the country that threatens, uh, some would say, the very fabric of our governmental institutions as well as our spiritual institutions. But as discomforting as that might be, Father, we know that there is, this, this discord is not without purpose. And so today we want to pray that uh, you would look with compassion upon the people of this land who live each day with injustice, those who live with terror, uh, those with disease and death as their constant companions. And Father, we ask that you would have mercy upon them and upon us who see these things but have done little to nothing to mitigate these evils. Father, we ask that you would help us to eliminate cruelty uh, to these our neighbors and also ask that you would give us strength and give especially strength to those who spend their lives establishing uh, equal opportunity and equal protection under the law. We ask that you would grant that every one of us might enjoy a fair portion of this abundance that we have in this great country. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The great miracle of redemption. John 4.19 tells us that all that happens to us via the redemption process are things that are precipitated by God and not by us. 1 John 4.19 says that he loved, we love him because he first loved us. If you have your Bibles this afternoon, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 1, And I'm going to read verse 18 as well as verse 21. Verse 18 in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is here trying to explain to the Corinthian church uh, what, he is, what he and the other apostles are all about. Verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Jump down to the 21st verse and he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So Paul was trying to tell the church that it's important that they hear the gospel message by a preacher, someone who is sent by God to bring to us the word of God. And that's what uh, happens and has happened for most of us in some, some kind of capacity, whether it be in some evangelistic crusade or whether it was an old country church or whether it was in some youth group, or whether it was in some other capacity, we've heard the Word of God preached, and we've responded to that. 
Last week I told you that we only have two options in responding to the gospel message once we've heard it preached. And that is one, we can, we can be convicted by that gospel message, we can recognize who we are in God and in Christ, and we can either respond by making him our savior, or that we can reject the gospel message and then he becomes our judge. Oftentimes, when we hear the word preached, especially since about the middle of the last century, uh, evangelism took on a little bit of a different turn, uh, and they began to use phrases like, uh, once you heard the word preached, is that uh, we, we need to, or, or the, the listener needs to accept Christ as their personal Savior, or to make a decision for Christ, or ask Christ into your life. Uh, now, people who responded to those particular invitations, uh, that most of them feel pretty strongly about uh, not having seen anything wrong with that. But uh, those uh, like John MacArthur, for instance, thinks that uh, this particular, this wording, the way it is worded, that it violates not only the spirit, but also the terminology of the biblical uh, summons that God has given to us in his word. Now, to look at, let's look at that in Matthew 11, 25 through 30, and see specifically what uh, Jesus has done as far as the invitation. And you will notice right away that, that the invitation that Jesus gives is, is not so much a, a simple invitation. Matthew, the 11th chapter, starting with the 25th verse. Now, what the, the context here is that Jesus has been preaching throughout Galilee. And he has been performing miracles. He's been preaching the gospel, if you will. And he has been rejected again and again and again. And he is responding to, he responded to that earlier in one of our lessons. I think it was a couple of, couple of weeks ago. We talked about uh, how, how he gave in, in verses 16 through uh, 19 on, in the 11th chapter about, he said, we've, we've come and we've preached the message in just about every way you can preach it. The, the, the John the Baptist preached in a hard and, and sort of a, 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 a very sharp and hard message. I came and certainly was, was criticized for being a little bit too soft. Uh, we've done everything we can to bring you the truth of the gospel message, but many of you have rejected that. And he goes on to talk about in, uh, in Matthew about how what he's going to pour out his wrath on those who rejected as a part of his judgment. Starting on the 25th verse, let's look at this. He said, now at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. And what he's talking about there is he has hidden from those, from those people who have rejected, rejected his word the things that they need to know, the revelation of who he is and of who God is. And as a result of that, Christ is saying, uh, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. And that because he's, he's, what he's wanting to, to uh, the point that he's trying to make is that there are some people who think just by uh, virtue of having known, for instance, the scribes and the Pharisees, who knew the law, but yet knew nothing about, if you will, the gospel message that Jesus brought. And of course, uh, they reacted quite uh, angrily to that, comparing his gospel message with what they understood the law to say. 26 verse says, he says, so even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. 
So what he's saying is, is that hiding the truth of the word from these, uh, these people who were not going to believe the word was in fact considered to be good in the sight of God. And all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will to reveal him. And then he goes on in verse 28, says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, there's obviously there's, there's none of that evangelistic sort of rhetoric about accepting Christ as your Savior or making a decision for Christ or asking him into your heart. What Jesus is saying, in essence, is, is that submit to me. Repent of what the, the, the road that you're on. Repent of your sins and come to me. Essentially the same message that John Baptist was, was talking about, except John was, was not talking about Jesus per se. He was just asking people to repent. And so Jesus' gospel message in, in Matthew 11, 25, and 30, it's an appeal, but it's also a command. Repent and follow me. It's, it's not a passive invitation. It's, it's certainly, I, I think, if you look at this rhetoric here, if you will, or these invitations to the, to the gospel message, accept Christ, make a decision for Christ, ask him into your heart, those are rather passive kinds of invitations. It doesn't require anything on the part of the listener other than saying, okay, or I will, or, 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 or yes, I will, I will ask Jesus into my heart. And so, but, but that's not what the Bible says that we need to do. If you look at Deuteronomy 6.5, Deuteronomy 6.5 says we're to love the Lord, the God, with all of our heart and with all of our strength and with all of our body. And so Christ is not asking us just to lay him into our heart. He's asking us to repent of where we're on the road that we're on and to follow him, submit to him. It's an active submission to become like him. One of the things that he's not doing, if you have your, again, flip over to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Let's look at verse 5. One of the things that, that, that he is always very careful to do is to make sure that, that those that he is calling, those that he is asking to repent and to follow him, he makes sure that they understand the price of that decision that you make. In Hebrews, it's, he makes it very clear here, the writer of Hebrews does, talking in verse 5, he says in the 12th chapter, he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. And then there's this uh, proverb verse here, it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. For if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, and not what son for, for, for what not for what son is there without a father who does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegit illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, 
that we may be partakers of his holiness. And what the, what the writer of Hebrews here is saying is that when we, when we become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the standard that he has set for us, uh, I, it's, it's going to be impossible for us to meet that standard. And as we live, our, as we grow spiritually, there are going to be many instances where we're going to go astray. We're going to sin. We're, we're not made perfect in Christ until that day uh, uh, when, when he comes again. Until that time, we are very imperfect people and we are going to sin. And as a result of our sin, sometimes in God's infinite wisdom, uh, he is going to chasten us to bring us back to the straight and narrow, just like your parents did, and continue to do sometimes. Even, even after you get grown, your parents sometimes will try and, and uh, chasten you somewhat to, if they think that you're going making bad decisions or you're going the wrong way or you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And that, of course, is what the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to say here, is that when you are chastened, when you are rebuked, when you are suffering the... the uh, or enduring the chastening of God, you should be looking at that as being something that not only is beneficial to you, but also keeps you, and spiritually keeps you on the right path. Now, the, there is no sanctification. Christ is not coming into our life. He doesn't ask us to repent and follow him and accept him as our Lord and Savior so that he can be some sort of a... a an accessory to our otherwise secular life. He's not going to come into a life where there is uh, continuous disobedience. Oftentimes you'll, you'll see people who, uh, whether they're sports stars or whether they're Hollywood celebrities or movie stars or, or perhaps even people within the church, that, that uh, you know that their life on a daily basis doesn't come close to being that of being Christ-like. But oftentimes, whenever they're given some spotlight in which to, uh, to whether it's accepting some reward or award or whether it's some other way, is that they will, uh, you know, somehow attribute what, the, what is the, the award that they're receiving. Uh, they'll say, oh, I owe it all to Jesus, or they might say, thank you, Jesus, or they might say, use some other kind of, of uh, uh, off-of-the-cuff uh, thing to make themselves appear rather holy or rather sanctimonious. But it's impossible for us to live the kind of life that many of these people live and still expect Jesus to be a continual part of that life of disobedience. If we're going to disobey and live outside the will of God six days a week and, and then think that somehow he's going to invade our life on Sunday morning from 10 until 11, uh, I think we're going to be sorely disappointed in that. Now, the call to conversion in this preaching requires several essential elements to take place. As we listen to the preached word, the gospel truth, there are essentially five elements of genuine conversion that must take place. It's, it, again, it's, it's not simply asking him into your life. And then from that day forward, you say, well, I feel, I feel wonderful. I asked Jesus in my life today. Uh, you know, I am now secure forever. No, that's, that's when the hard stuff starts to happen. It's after you have made that commitment of accepting his appeal and his command to follow him. First of all, one of the, the most essential uh, uh, is number one, not, 
necessarily the most essential, but certainly this uh, an essential element of that genuine conversion is the fact that we must be, there must be a degree of humility in that. It's nothing that we have done. We can take absolutely no credit whatsoever for having been convicted and given faith then to accept Christ or to, to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 says, if you see in, in verse 25, let me go back over there real quick. But Jesus knew their thoughts, every kingdom, no, that's not it, 25. At that time, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have uh, revealed them to babes. We, we don't, we don't, uh, we're not convicted of our sins and we are not, we don't uh, develop our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him to be our Lord and Savior based upon our own intellectual ability. There is nothing that we could, that uh, has, has convinced us intellectually that he is the right choice for us. So when we, when we try to say, well, I, and I, I've heard students say this before, uh, when in, in being in some conversation with them about, uh, about their faith, uh, is that, I, you know, you'll say, well, how did you come to faith in, in, in Christ? How, tell, give me a, you know, just a little snapshot of your testimony. And many of them will say, well, you know, I, I read the Bible and I, I've just decided that uh, uh, I, I studied all the religions and I, I think that Christianity is the best. So that's, you know, I just decided to uh, accept Christ as my Savior. Well, uh, if you did that as a part, and, and, and I think the, the thinking behind that is that somehow people are supposed to be impressed uh, because of your intellectual pride and the fact that you've read it all and you have decided that this is the best way to go. Christ is not looking for that. As a matter of fact, as he says, that we, we know nothing except what has been revealed to us by the Father and the Son. And of course, the Son reveals us to us as a part of, as a, via the Holy Spirit in our life. We are to be like babes. Matthew 18, 3. If you look over there real quick. Matthew says very clearly is that the, what Jesus wants us to be is just like babes. He says, uh, Matthew in the third, the 18th chapter in the third verse, he says, and he said, this is Christ speaking, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter to the kingdom of heaven. And he didn't, he didn't mean that they become infants per se, but they become, they become little children in that they are entirely and wholly dependent upon the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit in our life so that they, in fact, can be uh, informed or at least become uh, aware of uh, the revelation of who Jesus is and who the Father is. And so that revelation comes not by our own intellectual ability, but by Him through the power of the Spirit speaking to us through the Word, whether that's the Word preached or whether that's the Word in the, in the Bible itself, in the truth of the Word. Revelations is, a, is a, probably the, uh, the second in line here, is that the revelation comes to us, as we said in, in Matthew, it comes to us because we have, we have we accepted the idea that we know nothing except that which is revealed to us through the Holy Spirit from Christ. 
and he pulled from the father. And so Matthew eleven twenty seven, if you go back to what we were reading there, he says, All things have been delivered to me by my father, and to no one and no one knows the son except the father. We, we could know nothing about Jesus if it was not revealed to us by the father. Nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. So we know nothing about the love of God. We know nothing about Jesus Christ and what he did for us uh, except it is revealed to us through the power of the spirit that lives within us. So Matthew eleven seven says, we have no reason to be prideful in anything that we might learn because it's all been given to us through the revelation of God. In that statement in 27, there are two things that he does. First of all, he makes a declaration not only of his deity, father and son, but also of his sovereignty, meaning that, that uh, not only does, does he and the Father work in concert in terms of reveal, revelation, but those two, without their revelation, we know nothing. What we know about God is only what the Son chooses to reveal during the Holy Spirit. Now, the third essential element of genuine conversion is there must be repentance. John the Baptist came preaching repentance. Jesus also came preaching repentance. You look at that 28th verse there. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Most commentators agree when they talk about this, this those who labor and are heavy laden, uh, he's speaking specifically about the burden of the law. These are people who found out, these are the Jews and, and, and certainly those who lived under the law, is that they became weary trying to not only understand the, the hundreds if not thousands of laws that existed, but also they became weary trying to understand when they were supposed to do something, when they could not do something, and so forth. And so that's the weariness that he's talking about, the labor that it takes to stay righteous under that kind of a system. Now, when we here, uh, I, I mentioned some of the, the tension. One of the things that uh, I, I think that all Christians at some point in time in their Christian life experience the tension, uh, it's sort of a cognitive dissonance that exists between uh, being, to being uh, told that, that, only, that, that God calls us all and we respond because we have been elected and we have been called and we cannot resist the call. Uh, it's, it, of course, the doctrine is called the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. And we can't resist that. And so it's, it's like, you know, we're being called, but at the same time, we've been given. So it's the tension that we, God gives us to Christ. He, he has in the, in the infinite times past, he has decided who's going to be given the revelation, and then there's going to be, and, the, and then once they've been given the revelation, revelation, there's going to be those who are called. John 6, 37 if you have your Bibles, again, open to, to John 6. Probably one of the more reassuring verses in Scripture, very much like in John 17th chapter where Jesus is, is praying to the Father in the garden. But in, in John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. That's a very reassuring verse, especially to those who, who are already in Christ, those who have made that decision that, uh, you know, they've been convicted and they have made that decision to become submissive to Christ 
And so they follow him. Grace of God through election in times past, in infinite time past, determined who will receive that saving revelation. And so those people are given to Christ, and then Christ has been has given the word through the gospel message to preach the word, and then those people are then invited to come to repent and then to follow Christ. So when we when we think about that. You know, there is that, there's that natural tension that arises in our minds about, well, if it's already been decided by God that I'm going to come to Christ, why, you know, why all of that other, the middleman stuff there? How come I, I just can't, uh, it, you know, get from A down to Z without all of the other stuff in the middle? Well, that's a, that's a part of the great miracle of redemption and the process that, that we go through for that. All right, the last thing here that I wanted to talk about today are the two things that, the, the two essential elements that are, are left. One, of course, is faith. Most of us recognize anyway that, uh, right away, that faith is just the flip side of repentance. We repent of our sins, and then we have faith that that repentance and that following of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to lead us to what has been promised by Christ, which is that eternal fellowship with him in his kingdom. Now, uh, again, this is, this is not a passive or intellectual exercise. Faith is a very um, outward exercise. It's not something that says, oh, I have faith. And you, sometimes you will hear people that will flippantly say, well, yeah, well, I have faith, and then right turn right around uh, and, and, and say something which belies their faith. One of the, one of the things and, uh, I appreciated probably as much as any part of the message on Sunday was when Tyson started talking about the, about the COVID virus and talking about our response to that and, and uh, what we should know and what we don't always necessarily reflect in our behavior know. And that of course has to do with the fact that, uh, uh, you know, obviously the, co the, the COVID virus is something that it was ordained by God. Uh, he didn't say, you know, that, that uh, I'm going to develop a virus and send it out there. But he, he allowed these things through his, his, uh, his will to allow these things to happen. Now, regardless of whether it's a COVID virus or whether it's a train wreck or whether it's a, a plane crashing from the, from the sky, uh, as Tyson said on, on Sunday, you and I are not going to go... We're not going to die one second before God ordains that we die. Now, we, we should know that. You know, and his words about, uh, you know, that doesn't entitle us. It doesn't, because we know that, we, we shouldn't do foolish things. But at the same time, there has been a set time, there has been an ordained time, which you and I, as in terms of the number of hours and number of days and the number of years that we're going to live, and that's all we're going to live. It may be this afternoon, it may be tomorrow, it may be 10 years from now, but at some point in time, I'm going to die and you're going to die. And we ought to live our lives like that and not be sometimes, but be so overwhelmed by the events and circumstances of the world that we lose sight of what we're supposed to have faith in. 
and that is the promise of God in terms of who is ultimately in control. And that is, he is ultimately in control. He and the Son. They're both part of deity and of sovereignty. So faith is, is, is not just an intellectual exercise. It's something we have to live out daily in the way in which we conduct our lives, we live our lives. And the way in which we do that speaks to what kind of faith that we have. If we run around fretting and, and, and so forth about, oh, I'm, you know, I don't want to die, and it's, you know, that doesn't speak very well for the faith that we ostensibly have as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally today, the last thing we, that is an essential element is that submission. Another very active thing that we need to do is submit ourselves to him. Verse 29 talks about his yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Those of you who might have some, I would imagine that most of you have some knowledge of what a yoke is. Uh, usually they're, they're used around cattle or used with cattle uh, to, to, uh, uh, to do work, farm work, and so forth. But a yoke is something that is individually designed for a particular cow or animal, beast of burden. And that yoke, of course, does several things. One, it, it restrains that animal, and it gets that animal to submit. But in that restraining and submission, the yoke has to be, has to be designed specifically for that, for that animal to make sure that it's not going to be you know, a problem in and of itself. It does, it's not problematic. It's not uncomfortable. It doesn't rub or, or cause uh, sores or or other things to develop on the animal, which would be distracting. The yoke is meant to restrain us and to cause us to be submitted to the perfect will of the Father. It also is a, a, a part of, is to disciple or to teach. Of course, the longer that an oxen wears a yoke and learns what he's supposed to do when he's under the yoke, he is going to be able to accomplish the work that he has been ordained to do. As if the farmer or whoever is using the oxen is trying to teach him. And of course, the, the, the Jewish uh, rabbis used to have a, 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 this uh, Hebrew saying, and I can't remember all what it, exactly what the words were right now, but it was essentially learn from me. It's the yoke of God. It's about learning from me. And the yoke of the law is learn from me. And the last thing, of course, is what it is, is meant to, to do. The yoke is meant to get us to obey. And so when Jesus says that, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I think most Christians would agree is that, you know, that, that living the Christian life, while it does, it certainly is not an easy life in that there are, many things where we're going to fall short and we're going to be constantly repenting for the things of where we fall short, but at the same time he gives us the strength through the power of the Spirit that lives within us and the more we live and be obedient to him, the more strength we're given to be obedient, the easier it becomes to be obedient. This, this whole imagery of a yoke sort of argues against that yoke lordship doctrine that we've talked about and that John MacArthur wrote about in his book. Uh, those, those who say that it's all that's necessary is to just make a decision for Christ or ask him into your heart and that's all you have to do. And you do that after hearing the four truths of the gospel message and if you agree to the four truths of the gospel message, 
That's, that's it. That's all you have to do. All the rest is what they would say in Louisiana is a lanyard. It's a little something extra. But if you look at the, one of the essentials of the conversion process here, uh, the genuine conversion is submission, which then, of course, says that we, we, we must be restrained, we must submit, we must learn, we must be obedient. And so that's all a part of being uh, converted, if you will. Now this, uh, uh, again, it's, it's I, I would have to, if I had to rate things, I would, I would say that this, the conversion process is the most important processes that we are engaged in as we begin our Christian life and that we fully understand what the conversion process is and, and never take for granted that all it, all it entails for us is, is, is saying a simple little statement or making a simple little statement like accepting Christ as your Savior or accepting Christ in your, into your heart and then that's all you have to do and you're good to go from then until the time you lay down and die. Now, I, there may be some. Uh, obviously, there are, there are exceptions to the living a long life and, and, and uh, you know, going through the entire process of sanctification over 40 or 50 years or whatever it might be because there are some who obviously don't do that. Who they're converted and then their life is so short that they don't have a time to go through you know, the sanctification process, but that does not uh, uh, dismiss the conversion that they have. But for most of us, it's a, it's a very long process. It's a process that we will, we will win and we will lose many, many times in terms of being obedient to and, and following through uh, as, as God has ordained us in Christ and following through to become more Christ-like. And so I encourage you through, as you look at these things, is, is to think about, you know, what part of the conversion process uh, perhaps have I been most weak at? Uh, what part of the conversion process should I think about? Should I pray about? Uh, should I try to be more engaged in? So next week we will continue talking about the gospel according to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.